Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. My name is John Cooper, and I'm the director of the Sundance Film Festival. I'm pleased to introduce the first ever live recording of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. Today's episode will include conversations about this year's Sundance Buzz, as well as a few special guests from this year's festival. So if you like real talk, come to IndieWire. We all know that already. So now here are your hosts, Ann Thompson and Eric Cohn. Thanks, John. John's a great friend, even though he... Thanks for doing that. ...is always terrified that we might write something about him he doesn't like, but... Uh, that's not always the case, and it's, it's really great to be here and, and to do a live version of this podcast we started last year, because usually we're just in a void, Anne and I talking over Skype, and we don't even know if there is an outside world out there, so this I is I might different... be in my pajamas. <laughs> and sometimes you're in Europe, too, so... <laughs> the other thing that I really like about being at Sundance, outside of the, the community and the friends that we have here, is, is that there's this element of the unknown when we go into it, and... The theme that I've been told is, is, is uh, associated with the Airbnb house where we're recording today is strangers meeting strangers, which is actually an appropriate starting point for talking about what Sundance is like because personally when I go into this festival, it is all about meeting strangers, not just in terms of people, but in terms of movies. And so my experience is always that at the beginning of the festival, I go for all the unknown variables, things like the wolf pack, which we'll be talking about later. Or well, there was some buzz on the wolf were, pack. Okay, okay. But it was a little bit of an unknown variable, or, or let's say something like uh, Entertainment or James White, these, these sort of smaller films that, you know, I like to discover. I like to be part of that initial wave. But, and I feel like your approach is a little bit different. You go for the big ones, right? I go for insider information. I'm uh, showing up at the... Uh, Art House Convergence, and I see John Cooper and, and Trevor Groff, you know, going through the security line, and I say, okay, guys, what are the three movies I got to see? And they said, Diary of a Teenage Girl, The Wolf Pack, and the um, Noah Baumbach, Mistress America. So those are the films I had to see. And I check out what other people have to say, too. And I'm also looking at what are the movies that are going to break out and going to make news and are going to be good to write about and are going to show up in theaters. You have a much different agenda. Yeah, my agenda is I'm looking for the things that might not have show up anywhere unless we start talking about them here. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is that the narrative of this festival is so easily hijacked by what the industry is saying. So this year, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl was this huge sale for $12 million dollars to Fox Searchlight and Indian Paintbrush. That became the big story as soon as that happened. To me, there are other kinds of stories that happen around that story that have as much value to you as an audience member as soon as you hear about them. And one of the things that's scary to me is that I personally have not seen that movie yet. I'll see it on Friday. But my, my fear... Don't believe everything you read about how much they paid for it. You heard it here first, folks. Um, <laughs> I, I find it scary that that, that could lead to a possibility where that is the only film that could define Sundance. Last year, for example, Boyhood was here, right? That's what everybody's talking about. Is that a bad thing? It's not a bad thing, except for the conversation at the start of the festival being, what's this year's Boyhood? Or a couple years ago, what's the next Beast of the Southern Wild? 
part of what I'm looking at as an Oscar prognosticator is I'm looking at what are some of the films that are going to have that long trajectory that could actually be in the conversation, the Oscar conversation. A lot of docs really do get launched here as part of the Oscar conversation, and I need to pay attention to that. But, you know, it's not just about how they, you know, whether or not they have Oscar potential. It's more about how can we get to a point where the right kinds of movies can be inserted into that conversation further down the line. I mean, there's so much pressure place placed on movies when they arrive here to perform at those first screenings. You hear about standing ovations somehow telling you something, and Bobcat Goldthwait is going to be up here in a little bit can tell you about what that feels like because he got one the other night. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like th it's sort of a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, it tells you something right now that this movie plays. On the other hand, is it going to get people to go see that movie in theaters six months, a year down the line? And so I'm very much uh, dubious of these things. But I, I feel like at the same time, there is maybe a certain value in harnessing that enthusiasm. My, my hope is that more people will do it faster, that these movies can get out there faster after the festival, so you don't have to sort of restart the hype machine you know, months later. But one of the things that I'm a little skeptical about, and you could tell me more about this from, from your perspective, is, is the idea that the sales taking place at this festival are somehow an indicator of their commercial potential. I mean, something like a $12 million price tag, assuming it's accurate, uh, would, would, would suggest to me that this movie needs to make, let's say, $40 million just to be considered some kind of a success when it comes well, out. Well, it all moment. depends on who's spending that money. I mean, one of the reasons why the market has become inflated and uh, you're getting higher numbers is because there's more players in the market and everybody needs movies. That's what it's finally about. There, I asked somebody, what's going on with the market? They said, they need movies. And so the most commercial movies are going to go for the highest prices. And if you have newcomers, new entrants in the scene, they're going to pay more for those movies then, and jack up the prices across the board. But a Fox Searchlight, who, who has... One of the things that interested me about um, one of the stories I wrote this time, Transparency Project, uh, this new Sundance initiative that's going to be um, allowing filmmakers to input numbers into um, a big website that's going to be able to help them with all, if everyone participates and everybody sticks their numbers in, the distributors and the exhibitors and the, the filmmakers, if they will be able to do the numbers crunching that a company like Fox Searchlight has the ability to do. If they've been mo releasing movies for decades, they can really accurately figure out what they're going to need to to get back and how they're and how likely it is. If they've already released Juno, they can look at me and Earl and the dying girl and say, well, we know what this movie might be able to do in this marketplace. That's one thing to anticipate the way that these distributors think about the business based on various experiences they've had over the years, but the mind of a filmmaker is a very unique thing and it's much harder to sort of get inside of it. So we, we should probably bring some filmmakers into this conversation to sort of shed light on that. And the first uh, guest that we have today, I'm, I'm really excited about because this movie, you know, Anne says it had a lot of buzz, which I would say is, is an accurate way of saying it, but it's also something of a discovery. It's called The Wolf Pack. It's a really fascinating movie about uh, a, a, a family that was uh, sort of raised in, uh, sort of forced to, to, to grow up indoors in, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, until their teen years, and they learned everything about the world from the movies. Um, and here to talk to us a little bit about the experience of making that movie and bringing it here is the director of the, the film, Crystal, Crystal Moselle. So, uh, Crystal, it's a, it's a fascinating movie. Congratulations Thank on, you. on the fascinating, uh, you know, project, and also the the kinds of reactions that you've been getting. It just seem seem to speak to just what a what a rich, complicated. Point.
portrait you've made here. And, and one of the things that I was wondering is, you know, it's one thing to spend as much time with these subjects as you did, which I believe is five years, is that right? Yeah, it's almost been five years. And, and then it's something else to kind of bring this finished project to people and, and, and just, you know, they, they're coming into it cold. So what was that like for you? It was very wild because, <laughs> I mean, these kids live their entire lives isolated from the world, and now they're at Sundance, like, with all eyes on them from the world. So it's been a really strange experience for everybody, but it's been nothing but positive, so. How did you discover the story? I was just walking down the street, and the boys, like, ran past me, and my instincts took over, and I ran past up to a crosswalk, and I asked them where they're from. And they said, from the Lower East Side, Delancey Street. And uh, I was like, what are you talking about? I've never seen you around here. And uh, they asked me what I did for a living. I told them I'm, I was a filmmaker. And they said, we're interested in getting into the business of filmmaking. And I started showing them cameras. And we, you know, it was really a friendship that grew into a film. Yeah. Now, there, there, was, there was a lot of sort of unknown variables about this movie before mm -hmm. it got here, and, and the cast, you know, showed up at the festival, yeah. but didn't speak to the press. I mean, not a lot of people knew about this story, so mm -hmm. how did you guys sort of approach this, you know, getting to the finish line, knowing it was going to Sundance, mm -hmm. you know, making this a public story, because mm -hmm. obviously there are a lot of different perspectives on this. Um, sorry, so your question, what part of the question... I mean, what, what, what did you guys expect in terms of the reactions of this movie and the impact it's going to have oh, on this family? Oh, I had no idea it was going to get this big. <laughs> I mean, I was like, I hope that people will want to see it. We should put up those posters on Main Street so people can see it. And then the New York Times feature broke and everything went wild bananas. So it's been really... Um, a learning process for me because I just wasn't expecting this, and um, but it's been nothing but positive. How did you know when the yeah. movie was over? Excuse me. How did you know when you had finished it? When you've worked on it for so long? How did I know when I had finished the film? Um, well, we had a deadline for Sundance. <laughs> well, you must have submitted something. It's when they took it away from us. That's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, no, I mean there was. You know, I think that our characters had a real transformation, and when you see that transformation come alive on screen, and there's this one moment, and I'm not sure if any of you guys have seen the film, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's one moment where I just felt in my heart that this transformation for this film, because, you know, there's obviously going to be a bigger story in 10 years, you know, 20 years, you never know, like, the repercussions of the childhood, so... Um, but for the story that I was telling, there was a really beautiful moment that felt like the movie came full circle. One thing that I think we can talk about is mm -hmm. the sort of enigma of the father figure who yeah. raised these, these children under, let, let's say, unorthodox circumstances, which is an understatement. Um, you do see him in the movie. Obviously, he knows about the project. He didn't come to Sundance. So what's his relationship to all of this? Uh, he's, he's seen the film, and he loves the film. He thought it was a beautiful portrait. He felt that he was able to see his children's point of view um, because they don't share that with each other. And he, um, I think that it kind of opened his eyes up a little bit more. Yeah. 
what, what do you want to happen now in terms of not just the life of this movie, but in terms of what might happen to its subjects? Because my understanding is that you know, not everybody is sort of out of this situation yet, right? Well, I mean, they are out of the situation because the power in the household has changed. Now they're just all living together in a house and everybody can do whatever they want. But what do I want out of this film? I think that this project for me is bigger than this film. These kids are talented and they're fascinating and they need to share more of their stories with the world and hopefully one day they'll be up here talking about their movie. So it's, it's fascinating to hear sort of what it's like to go to Sundance with, with the first film. It's, us, it's something else entirely to, to come back to Sundance year after year and have an, a, a new set of unknown variables, which is our transition to our next guest. Uh, he's a guy you've seen uh, talking to a microphone in a lot of different ways. In the 80s, usually he screamed into a microphone. Uh, more recently, he makes movies, and he's been come at Sundance up. a lot. Um, he has a film here called Call Me Lucky. Please welcome Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you. So, Bobcat, just to summarize this really quickly, it's, it's your first full-on documentary. It's about this sort of comedian-turned-political uh, activist, Barry Crimmins, um, and the kind of fascinating trajectory of, of his life. Why go from, you know, the narratives you've ma been making these last few years, sort of edgy experiments like Stay or World's Greatest Dad, to something like this? Well, I just thought as, um, you know, in a, it was cheaper. <laughs> um, it, that's kind of true in a weird way. I thought I'd make a narrative about Barry's life because he's a pretty fascinating man. And, um, you know, I, 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 um, I shared this at the premiere, but, um, you know, I, I, Robin Williams was my best friend and he knew my relationship with Barry and Barry's story. And, I was trying to make it as a narrative, and, and that seemed like it was going to be very difficult, and he, he suggested I do it as a documentary. So he actually gave me the uh, initial money that started us filming the movie last February. So um, that, that's really why. I, and, you know, if, if I'm lucky enough to keep making movies, I, I just don't, I want to make as many different kind of genres as possible. I don't really, um, I, I just love telling stories, so whatever facilitates the story seems to make more sense. Your last one, Will, Willow Creek, was, was a horror movie and had a little bit of a, a semi-documentary aspect. Yeah, it did. We did there, it was a, a scary Bigfoot movie, and um, there's a good portion of uh, there's folks in the movie that didn't know we were making a narrative, um, and we would, we would do interviews with them. And, 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 and so it's, it was a little bit like a doc, I guess. Yeah, it's, um, yeah Willow Creek... Call Me Lucky and World's Greatest Dad, it's uh, three movies about very hairy men. <laughs> I was going to say Windy City Heat, too. And Windy City Heat was kind of a, that's like, yeah, that's a bit of a doc, too. So I guess it wasn't that strange that I went and made a doc. Yeah. So um, Barry said that, that he hadn't seen the film yet until yesterday at your premiere, and he said that you did justice to him in the Q&A, but that was in front of all those people. So what did he, what did he tell you afterwards? Um... He 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 was very sweet to me. Actually, he said that. Um, well, I'm not going to say what he said. He said something nice. <laughs> he, he likes the movie, so I'm happy. I was very nervous. Um, you know, the, it's a movie about a comedian that most folks aren't familiar with, who was um, 
a mentor and a bit of an influence on a lot of the contemporary comedians that folks know, like, uh, you know, David Cross and Bill Hicks and people like that. But, you know, that's just a, a small part of Barry's story. He's a, an adult survivor of child abuse, and it's, it's uh, about him uh, coming to grips with that and, and not only just coming to grips with that, uh, uh, coming through the other side and uh, changing a lot of lives. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 there's no elevator pitch for the movie. You know, that's the problem a little bit. It's a movie that combines, uh, you know, your comedy world and a lot of laughter with a very serious story, and you you make him into a, a real hero. Yeah, well, he, he he hates that, but he is a hero. He, you know, for the folks who I'm sure you're not familiar with the movie, he, um, uh, in the early '90s, while he was looking for other uh, survivors of, uh, of Barry was raped when he was a child, and. Um, what he found on AOL in the chat rooms, when he was looking for other people with similar tales, he ended up finding um, pedophiles exchanging child pornography. And he went to AOL, and they kind of ignored him. And then he went to the police, and nobody really did anything. So he posed as a kid and got all this evidence and ended up taking AOL all the way to the floor of the Senate and, and kind of embarrassing them. It was pretty... It was, I'm very happy with that scene. It's very... Uh, uh, Frank Capra, I'm sure the attorney for AOL thought, you know, I'm just dealing with some bar comedian, but he, 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 he does a real good job. <laughs> Sounds like probably your first experience at Sundance, right? What do you mean? Well, I'm, I'm going back to coming, coming to the festival for the first time as a filmmaker with your own background, which you alluded to in your introduction. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean... Um, Not, no offense, obviously. No, I was, like, I was trying to figure out... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I know I have, uh, you know, I was very big in the 80s. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, so I'm aware that I come with a lot of baggage, you know, but um, I, I just, it's fine with me. You know, I was just walking down the street and this guy came up to me and he goes, I've seen all your movies, I love your movies. And, and I'm going, oh, that's cool. This guy appreciates my body of work as a director. He goes, Police Academy 2 and 3 and 4. And I was like, oh, dear God. You know, no matter what I do, when I die, my obituary picture will be me in a police uniform standing next to a talking horse. But you, you've made a lot of documents, I mean, of, of movies. Like, how many have you made? I've, I've made seven movies now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, you're a pro. Well, people, you know, my movies make hundreds of dollars. So, um, <laughs> so people are really familiar. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask both of the filmmakers we have up here about sort of how your earlier experiences informed, you know, sort of where you're at right now. Because Crystal, even though this is you're being touted as you know a first-time filmmaker, this is obviously not the first kind of moving image thing you've made. You've made music videos and, and commercial work as well, right? Yeah, and so. I worked on a documentary for five years as a producer. So, yeah. so, so I mean, how did those experiences inform making the feature you've made now? I mean, just you know, do you feel like you had the sort of experience you needed to get to that point or was it was there more of yeah, a Yeah, I mean I, th I think every s everything you do is like preparing you for the next step. So I, you know, I knew how to use a camera. I knew how to interview people. But um it was a very intimate process with these kids. So I think that's why it took so many years. Um but I don't know. So it was just you. So I know that you have to go off and do a Q and A. I do. Um, I do. Uh, your your publicist is waving from from the back. Uh, that that's the most important thing you have to do today. Yeah, so. I have. I'm doing a screening like in 
It's actually, right it's actually on right now. She off the yeah. stage. That's why she's taking <laughs> off. Like, uh, we don't take it personally. Everybody's around like, get her off. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah. And, and Bobcat, in your own, in your own case, um, you know, I know you, you had done some TV directing and, and things of that nature as well. Um, so did any of that stuff sort of come to bear when you, when you started learning how to make movies? Or was it a separate process entirely? Um, well, it's all different, you know, but, um, yeah, I think everything, you know, I, I, yeah, I did direct a lot of different TV and things, so, yeah, they, I think they all did help, hopefully, uh, you know, I hope there's a learning curve, you know, every time out, it's, it's a different thing, you know, this one, it was, uh, it was funny, people telling me, you know, making documentaries is, is difficult, and I was just like, Naively, I was like, "Oh, you know," and that's like I was talking to other documentary filmmakers, and they go, "Oh, yeah, you know, how long? When did you start?" And I go, "February," <laughs> and uh, and 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 they go, "Oh, I've been working on mine for five years." And um, by the way, they're not impressed. They don't go, "Hey, that's fast." They go, "Hmm, must not be very good." Um, <laughs> so you must have some distributor interest. What's going on in that front? It yeah, I mean, you know. I don't know what's going on, and it, and it's not me being coy. Um, I, I truly, ever since I I started having movies play at Sundance, I try not to get caught up into that because then it poisons the experience of enjoying the movie and enjoying the reaction and the reception. Um, because of the digital age, there's you know all, all the movies I make eventually find an audience. So I'm I'm aware that it will become a digital product, you know. So if it gets in theaters, that would be wonderful. But but um, I'm just you know I'm just I'm just always on to the next one. I know that sounds weird, but I don't think in those terms. And you've got a role in Community as well, right? Uh, no, no, no. I, I I just last week I directed that show. So so that was really. Uh, that's the biggest. Well, I mean, I used to direct the Jimmy Kimmel show, but this is the first time I was on a, um, uh, you know, that kind of show. I never had done a single camera. Uh, well, that's not true. I direct Marin too, but but we do that very quickly. It, that's much more like the movies I make, the Marin show. Talk about the, the sort of film festival community and, and your relationship to it now, because those of us who travel around and go to a bunch of these things, you know, I, I see you at all kinds of different ones. Where whether it's something like this or. The Maryland Film Festival. Yeah. You know, it's just you, you, it seems like you've really sort of found a, a, a whole new world that, that you work well in, and, and it's obviously very different from one that you were working in before. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you do stand-up comedy, you have to keep the dumbest person in the room entertained, or they'll ruin the show. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, in movies, you know, they just go to Paul Bart too, so they don't come to uh, film festivals. So <laughs> it's it's much nicer. Uh, so I, um, I've, you know, Sundance is like Charlene Ying composed the score for for uh, 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 Call Me Lucky, and that friendship came about here at Sundance. And like you said, the Maryland Film Festival—that's where you know, uh, you know, Joe Schwamber, all these people that become my friends, you know. And and I, you know, I started doing stand comedy. When I was 16 years old. I got on Letterman. I was 20, and I'm 52 now. So to have this second life, the second career, and then make all these friends. Because, you know, the reality of it is, is, is um, I love talking about movies, and I love meeting other filmmakers, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I still do stand-up, so I, I can pay my bills, but I, I, that world is, you know, 
I, I, I have no interest in sitting in a green room with comedians and listening to them bash Carrot Top. I mean, that's pretty ponderous, you know? <laughs> you shouldn't see the movie Entertainment here. There's a lot of Carrot Top. Is there a lot of Carrot Top bashing? Well, I, will, I do want to see that movie, actually. Neil Hamburger style. Obviously. Oh, well. So have you had the opportunity to see any films while you were here? No, not yet, but I, I'm staying the whole time. And, and after today, I'm going to, well, tonight I'm going to see one, but, but after uh, uh, today I'm with my daughter and then we'll go to a bunch of movies. And, and uh, I'm going to see uh, uh, the uh, Evil Knievel doc tonight. That's my goal. You're good stuff about that. Um, should we open up for some questions? Yeah, let's take some audience questions. Bobcat can hang out for a bit, or you can ask us anything. Uh, i got to watch her Q&A, actually. Oh, okay. Well, right. bye then. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm You guys leaving. are in competition <laughs> together, so you're working against <laughs> each other yeah. right now. So raise your hand if you got your gun. And we have a microphone so that we can get it recorded, so let me just make sure that's okay. going around. Thanks. You said you're on to your next project. What is it? Well, I, I wrote a... a, a, a I, I I don't know. It's gonna be. Um, I wrote like a, uh, a a gay Billy Jack movie. You know, like I just wanted to do uh, like a an action film with a gay hero, but I didn't want to do it for comedy. You know, because I kind of think until there's just all kinds of roles that that's more of a political statement, you know. I, I said to Gus Van Zandt, I said, I want to make the coolest movie if you were a 13-year-old gay boy besides 300. So, um, <laughs> so, so that's one. And then I wrote, I wrote a, a zombie fetus movie. Uh, it's called Ankle Biters. And, uh, um, you know, so... You know, I'm here with this very heavy documentary, and it's very nice how it's being received. It certainly has exceeded my expectations, but, you know, I think it would be funny, you know, someone goes, sees this movie, and they cry, and then they go, <laughs> then they go rent my rom-com with bestiality and goes, is this the same dude? Uh, it's sort uh, of a sweet movie, too. That's a sweet movie, too, yeah. They're, they're always, I guess at the end of the day, there is some sort of sweetness to most of them. I'm just curious. We really desperately wanted to go to your film, and we couldn't get in. But because we didn't get there, I'm really curious how what we missed from the standpoint of you know being in the audience and your interaction with the audience at the Q and A and the, the the feelings that were going on in your mind as well as the audience and the interaction between you and the audience. Because I got the impression that there was a lot of that. Yeah, there was. It was very emotional for me. You know, I, I I said that I was. It was important to me that the audience liked the movie, but it was more important that Barry liked it. And then at the end of the day, it's it's really key that I that I did my friend, you know, Robin well. That was my big concern, and it was very receptive. Like there was um, standing O's and all that stuff, but. Um, um, it was very emotional, you know. I, I, uh, yeah. Um, the audience. What I f was really happy with is that there's a line where Barry says he has two goals, and that's to destroy the government of the United States and take down the Catholic Church. And um, and the audience started clapping, and I was like, Oh, good, they're in, you know, because that, <laughs> that's a 
it could go either way at that point, is, you know. Is he the only one who doesn't like Pope Francis? What's that? He may be the only person who doesn't like Pope Francis. Yeah, yeah, because he 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 he'll he, he'll spend hours on telling you why that uh, that Pope Francis is not good. He he's. <laughs> He he does his research and he's uh, yeah he's not buying the fact that he's a progressive uh, uh, pope. Uh, he has a problem with him too. Um, but as Barry says in the movie, I can ruin anything, which is true because Barry is so political. You know, what I mean, you'd be like, um, hey, you know, I got you some Dunkin' Donuts. Great. Why don't you just kill Afghani children? I'm like, what? You go, well, they're owned by the Carlyle Corporation, who are arms dealers. I'm like, okay, I'll I'll have the coffee, you know, and then. <laughs> Hey, I got my girlfriend some flowers. Great. You know what the pesticides do on flowers to the people that were all right. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, you know, so. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, there was tears from me. There was. Uh, I didn't see any from Barry. Um, I saw him around me in the audience, so you were good. What's that? It worked. People were crying around me too. Yeah, there's a lot of people crying in the theater, so. Um, that was pretty nice, you know. It was very emotional, and and that's the thing. And I don't mean to trivialize it. I, you know, I think a lot of the younger filmmakers get caught up in selling the movie and getting an agent and being, you know, becoming a, a studio director. And um, none of that interests me so much that it affects the, these these, you know, these 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 crazy special things that happen to me. I'm really lucky, you know. Call you lucky. No, I didn't mean that. That's corny. (laughs) That's branding. (laughs) All right. Uh, Anyone else? Got a question? You can ask us. For us or or we take the hard ones on his behalf. Uh, Just a a question about Sundance in general this year. I saw a lot of these bigger deals were uh, about these teen movies, and a lot of at least two of the three didn't really have any big movie stars. I was wondering if you guys could comment on that and if you see this trend of movies without huge names uh, selling for bigger money. Well, one of the things that, I, that struck me about both Diary of a Teenage Girl and Me and Earl and The Dying Girl is that they're based on uh, novels with, and they have very authentic, strong voices. And they're sort of part, I think, of that young adult trend that has been going on. And, and, and what it means is that you're not diluting that loud, clear voice. It comes through in, in the movie if it's done well. And so I think it could have a broader audience than just young kids. Also, you can't discount the power of the discovery here. I mean, there are agents going to see movies, and there's almost this ritualistic process where the, the new discoveries then head out to L.A. and, and go, go to meetings and get offered all these different projects. And I think specifically with Diary of a Teenage Girl, the young woman in that movie who I think is 22 years old and, and you know, it goes through this incredibly raw transformation and, you know, it goes, it does all these nude scenes and it's just like, it's a really uh, daring work in a movie that, that delivers. Absolutely. Yes. And then um, there's Thomas Mann in the other film who's the real breakout uh, actor there. And talent discovery is huge here. It's, it's terribly important. Um, they are combing these movies for the next director, the next beasts of the southern wild, you know. That's, that's what they're looking for. Okay, you've had a couple of discoveries in your movies, right? People who have gone on to um, to do other things after after working with you, some of the younger. No, younger. <laughs> um, I'm the career killer. Um, well, I remember. I know. No, no. 
There was uh, Rose McGowan had a short film here last year. And, who, and oh, had Tara. Uh, yeah, Tara was in. It. Yeah, um, yeah. The the folks that some of my friends have gone on, or they're already in things. But you know, I I I don't. I usually I don't cast the movies um, the traditional way. I cast them with some various friends, you know. Uh, some of them are well known. Some of them have his, you know, acting history. Some don't. And um, uh, you know, I I I think my movies would probably be uh, better known if I did hook up, you know. With more well-known actors and put them in the roles, but but um, I just can't justify that when I know if someone's just as talented or more talented and they're not working. <laughs> Anybody else? You you mentioned Robin Williams, and uh, I'm just curious what your relationship was with him. You say he was your best friend. Yeah. How long did you know him? How did you meet him? How oh. did you interact with him? What What did you do with him in terms of pro how would How did you relate to him as a friend and interact with him on a friendship basis? What a wonderful, talented, amazing person! And I know that you probably had an uh, incredible experiences with him. And we. I, I well, I mean, I'll say this. You know, uh, I was, I was, uh, I met Ram when I was nineteen. We were friends for thirty some years. So, um, but, you know, we worked on some things together, but he was a super talented man, and everyone knows that. But he wasn't, you know, he, I don't, I've never really spoken about my relationship with Robin um, outside of this movie because cause I felt that he, he would have been here, you know. But, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to trivialize y your question, but at the same time, it's like, um, my answer for that. It's very disappointing. He, 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 there wasn't anyone in my life that I spoke to more on the phone. Um, if you saw us talking, you wouldn't go, oh, there's Bobcat Goldthwait and Ron Williams. You go, if you overheard the conversation, you'd think we were two CPAs or something, you know. Um, uh, we were just friends, you know. We were, we were the ones that we just talked to each other about our day, you know. So, so of course, he was... I'll say this about Robin. I don't think I've ever met anyone that was more generous. And when I say that, not just on the level of charity and, and public things, but if you met him and you didn't know him, he would make you feel like you actually had a, a an interchange with him. And he was the first one to laugh at other people's things. And he was also, you know, he was just, um, he was very present when he, when he, whoever he encountered, you know. So, um, yeah, I don't, you know, Robin always, always the conversations were always about what what was happening with me, with my life, what I was doing creatively, just all that kind of stuff. To the point where sometimes I'd say, "Well, this is one-sided. I gotta, I should really ask him about that Oscar." You know, um, <laughs> so you know, he was just my best friend. You know, I don't like some people will ask me if I have Robin Williams. Stories, and I, I have a, I have a Robin Williams life, you know. He just, you know, I was his best man, and just traveled around the world with him, and you know, he was just my best friend. Well, we all miss him. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Last night it really hit me pretty hard that he wasn't here. That was, that was, that was. I think the first time I kind of, I mean, I've dealt with a lot of it this year, but 
But, um, you know, that's, it's just, I could keep talking, and I'm actually not going to. <laughs> well, I would just say, for those who haven't seen World's Greatest Dad, which is a movie two made together, I mean, it's a great example of that chemistry just in terms of how that collaboration worked out. I mean, it's one of his great late-period roles, and it's this really kind of energetic, surprising black comedy that you don't see very often, so it, it stands the test of time. It's been a couple of years now, but I uh, highly recommend people Thanks. check yeah, it out. Yeah, the movie was a, a good example of our friendship and collaboration, you know, and even though we were so close the day before, I was like, you know, I did go think, is he going to listen to me? You know, is he going to be, you know... I have an Academy Award, and you were in Police Academy. You know, um, I, I think this is <laughs> this is the way we're going to do it. But that wasn't; it was the direct opposite. And I think the other thing is, I think people when they would work with Robin, they would they would kind of just let him ad lib and spin out, and because and he was so willing to please, you know. And they not a lot, not every director he worked with would 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 give him notes, and he loved to get notes. He loved to be directed, you know. So that was why. The screening was very emotional because that was the same theater that he saw World's Greatest Dad in for the first time. And, and, and I had been to a lot of Robin's movies with him over the years, you know. And to sit there with him and he was laughing at the movie was really, he was like Max Cady, you know, when De Niro was in Cape Fear. He's like, ah, ha, 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 you know. <laughs> so we have time for maybe one more over here. I think from all of your points of view, what's been the most. Um, Surprising and disappointing shift in the industry and or at Sundance? Ooh, that's a good question. I am surprised by the heated market this time, uh, but it's a good thing, I think. Um, I think that the range of movies is superior in the sense of an enormous breadth of roles of many, many different kinds, many genders, many colors, just fabulously diverse. And I'm, I'm very pleased by that. It shows that something good is bubbling up in the culture in that way, I think. Well, I've been doing this for about a decade now. This is my ninth Sundance. And uh, one of the things that I found really interesting is that when, when I started doing this, there was already sort of a sense of this dichotomy between the American independent film scene and the commercial film scene. And around that time was when people that were sort of being labeled as this new American independent film movement, it was called Mumblecore, wasn't totally an accurate description of, of what these people were doing, but it took off, and, and folks like Joe Swanberg, Andrew Bujowski, the Duplass brothers were all associated with it, and all of those people have very different kinds of careers right now. They, they were and not. they're all here. They're all here. Uh, the Duplass brothers produced three movies that were here. Joe Swanberg was in the premiere section. And his wife, stars. Chris Swanberg, his is wife, in Chris the section, Swanberg, too. had a film in the, in the competition. Um, and, and Andrew Bajowski has a film in competition with Guy Pierce. So there's something that's interesting to me about sort of the legitimization of those people on, on, a, on a bigger stage that I think is actually very promising because it suggests to me that there's more of an appetite for different kinds of filmmakers with more innovative ways of telling stories because the kind of temporal structure is not the, the safest bet anymore. And, and, you know, things are changing. There's more fragmented taste. But there's also a lot more people going to television, as the Duplass brothers have. And there's also the entrance of Amazon and Netflix into this world, Netflix making a deal with, with the Duplasses. And now indie prod extraordinaire, you know, Sundance veteran Ted Hope over at uh, Amazon. So uh, I watched him over the week uh, conducting, his, the, he and Roy Price were conducting their meetings with producers 
a sort of line of you know speed dating, you know, at the Yarrow. Um, so it's it's all it's all good. It's all optimistic. I worry about distribution. I worry about people getting their movies out. But you say you're not so worried. No, it was weird when I first came here and had a, a, a picture at Sundance. I was obsessed with the theatrical release, you know. And now when I make a movie, I'm like kind of like going, oh, do we really have to put it in theaters? Yeah. A- and, and I love seeing the movies projected. That's a big thrill. But the reality of it is, is, uh, you know, when a, when a movie hits a digital platform, suddenly people over the whole country see my movie. So for me, that's just as exciting, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming, and thank you all for being here and, and, and sharing like our public. To, um, <laughs> I would be remiss if I didn't thank the Airbnb house for having us, and uh, to let you know, all know you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. We do this every week, as I said, without an audience, but you can be that audience and ask us questions on Twitter, and we'll try to bring them into it. So let's, let's keep talking. Thanks again for being here. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.